This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Public companies, investors, and financial services firms that recommend or sell securities may be subject not only to the federal securities laws, but to state securities laws administered by state securities regulators. At the heart of the state regulatory system is the North American Securities Administrators Association, or NASA, which represents state and provincial securities regulators in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. We're fortunate to have NASA's general counsel, Vince Martinez, on the show this week. He's going to tell us about the role of NASA and its relationship to the SEC and other federal regulatory agencies and SROs. Today, on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. As Kurt said, we're honored to have Vince Martinez as our guest today. Kurt, why don't you give us a brief background on Vince? Happy to. I'm, I'm excited to have Vince on the show. He's an old friend and a very talented securities regulatory attorney who, like me, has spent a lot of time working in the investigations and enforcement space. But let me tell you a little bit about Vince's experience. As I mentioned up top, Vince is the general counsel of NASA, the North American Securities Administrators Association. Before joining NASA, Vince was a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of K&L Gates, where he worked in the firm's investigations, enforcement, and white-collar practice group. Before K&L Gates, Vince worked in the Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Enforcement for almost 12 years, where he brought numerous anti-fraud actions against corporations and individuals. He also helped to establish, and later became the chief, of the Division of Enforcement's Office of Market Intelligence. Vince also spent some time at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, where he established the CFTC's whistleblower office and served as its first director. Vince began his career in private practice, working both as a corporate transactional attorney and a litigator in New York and Washington, D.C. Impressive experience. And now you can add guest on the Insecurities podcast to the list. That may be a dubious distinction, but anyway, we're glad to have you, Vince. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks. And and that's going to the top of the bio for sure. <laughs> for those listeners who are unfamiliar with this NASA, we wanted to provide some background on the organization. NASA represents state and provincial securities regulators in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Founded way back in 1919, NASA actually predates the Securities Exchange Commission and has been protecting investors from fraud for more than 100 years. It now maintains a membership of 67 securities administrators across all 50 states, the District of Columbia, Canada, Mexico, Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. According to the NASA website, its members are the closest regulators to local communities, small businesses, and the investing public throughout North America. Members of NASA have a multifaceted mission of protecting investors from fraud and abuse, conducting investor education, providing guidance and assistance via the established regulatory framework, and ultimately helping power the North American economy by ensuring the integrity of the financial markets. 
As a certified fraud examiner, Vince, it thrills me to see the tools and information NASA has developed to help retail investors keep an eye out for those red flags. Why don't you tell us more about NASA and your role as general counsel of the organization? Thank you, Chris. First of all, I'll uh, begin this discussion as I began every discussion that I had as a regulator by saying that uh, the views I express today, any opinions that I express are my own and they don't necessarily represent the views of either NASA or its state members. So just speaking high level about some of the activities that we engage in, uh, and I know that we're going to talk about some of these later on in the podcast with a little bit of detail, but um, we comment on legislative, regulatory, and self-regulatory proposals. A couple of our recent examples were commentary that we provided to the SEC on uh, the proposal for regulation best interest. Uh, we also recently commented on the uh, proposal by the SEC to change the accredited investor definition. One of the things that I personally find most exciting about my new role with NASA is NASA's work to develop model laws and rules. These are basically templates that we would offer to our member jurisdictions to take up or modify as they deem appropriate. And a couple of examples include uh, NASA's Model Act to protect vulnerable adults from financial exploitation. We also put together recently a model information security rule set for investment advisors. We um, develop every year legislative agendas that we provide to Congress, which are basically our takes on legislative proposals and what it is that we think are uh, important to states generally and to the question of investor protection. We also facilitate and offer state members up for congressional testimony on these aspects. We also appear as amicus at the invitation of state regulators or uh, even for federal uh, litigation. So, for instance, we had uh, recently submitted a, an appellate amicus brief for the Lou matter in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, we recently appeared on behalf of uh, New Jersey with respect to a case that they have ongoing. All of that, of course, is available on our website. We also serve at NASA to coordinate enforcement investigations and actions. One example was our Operation Crypto Suite year before last, which involved uh, over 330 inquiries and investigations and at least 85 enforcement actions. And then I'd also like to direct listeners to the uh, NASA website because yesterday we announced that we also put together an enforcement task force for uh, COVID-19 related enforcement actions. And so we'll, we'll begin the process of determining what sort of fraud is out there and what it is that, uh, that it, the states on a, on a combined basis can do about that. Uh, we participate in systemic oversight uh, through the Financial Stability Oversight Council and the Financial and Banking Information Infrastructure Committee. We also coordinate responses among regulators and members, and uh, we may talk a little bit further about that. Then um, last, just logistically, we provide some membership services that we think um, enhance the functions of state regulations on a holistic basis to make them more efficient. One is we have the electronic filings depository system, which allows issuers to, to make uh, filings to multiple states through one electronic medium. We also have uh, an electronic examinations modules program that allows state members to um, have a place to warehouse examination information and examination modules. And it, it's a service to the states to help them uh, conduct that activity more efficiently. 
Vince, it, it seems like coordinating all of those topics and efforts across more than 60 disparate securities regulators in, in different states, territories, and provinces is no easy task. <laughs> How is NASA organized to respond to that interesting challenge? Uh, so NASA works through standing committees that are organized into five sections, much like the organization of the Securities and Exchange Commission itself. So we have a section that focuses on broker-dealer regulation. Um, there's a section on investment advisor regulation, one on enforcement, one on corporation finance, and one on investor education. These sections then have below them a number of board committees that work on more specific topics. So, for instance, there's one, as, as you had mentioned uh, previously, about the Uniform Securities Act and questions surrounding that. There's a legal services committee, which would be the committee that vets request for amicus appearances. There's a regulation BI implementation committee. And those are just, just a few uh, examples of the numerous committees through which we work. In terms of what this means, in terms of resources and, and logistics, all NASA members are volunteers when it comes to NASA. So state administrators that are part of the, the uh, NASA family uh, are volunteering their time to, to help uh, make these things happen. NASA itself, as a, as a membership corporation, has uh, about 20 employees, maybe 21 if memory serves. So we're, uh, we're a small hub that then uh, coordinates all of these uh, voluntary activities. And within NASA itself, we have the legal function, which is mine. We have a policy function, uh, which helps with some of our policy efforts uh, on the Hill or uh, you know, among the states as, as needs be. We also have uh, a communications function, which uh, helps get out all of the wonderful content that you can see on the NASA website and also coordinates investor education efforts that we're very proud of. And then we also just do all of the, the other things that help uh, our members communicate with each other and be more efficient. Vince, it's a fascinating look at, at the work, the important work that NASA does. And I just I want to underscore a theme that, that maybe we haven't stressed quite enough, but I think the thread that runs through all of the committees and all of the work that NASA does is really um, advocating its goal of looking out for protecting retail investors. I mean, is that a fair summary of the, the work or the purpose of NASA? I think so. As, as was pointed out earlier, there are aspects to our mission. It's not monolithically about uh, retail investor protection, but if I was going to say what the most important focus of what it is that we do as an association would be, then certainly investor protection is our primary focus. And I think it's fair to say that it permeates much of what it is that we do in terms of our legislative outreach, in terms of our commentary, uh, in terms of if, if one was to say that there's a, a unifying theme to what NASA does, uh, investor protection is, is what we're all about. Looking at NASA through that prism, I want to drill down on a few of the areas where NASA does its work. And frankly, these are a few of the areas that I found most interesting. So I have a list of three uh, that I want to that I want to get into, and they relate to uh, exams, enforcement, and model rules. The first thing that I wanted to drill down on that that you've mentioned earlier was 
one of the services that you offer to members, and it's Nemo. So Nemo is NASA's electronic examination module. And as I understand it, Nemo is a resource that's designed to help NASA's members, the state securities regulators, bolster their capabilities or capacity to examine broker dealers and investment advisors. The tool's been around for about 12 years now, but I understand it got some upgrades in 2019. So tell us a little bit more about Nemo. What does it do? How do the state securities regulators use it? I think, Kurt, that you you said it eloquently. It, it exists as a service to regulators themselves in order to help them um, develop examination modules, to help them conduct examinations, to have appropriate record keeping for um, examinations and responses. And so it it exists it exists as as a tool to to facilitate all of those efforts and to to basically you know provide an additive capacity so that each state regulator, some of which are not as uh, resource rich as others, um, has a firm uh, basis upon which to to build these programs. Do you think that that it does, or is it an intended effect that this will bring some consistency? In, in the approach across the state securities regulators or uh, perhaps bring um, consistency or expectations for regulated entities who may be the subject of exams? That's an interesting question. And um, I think the answer is yes and no, and I'll tackle the no first. So it is not as a tool designed for the purposes of consistency of approach. One of the important things to understand about the NEMO system is that information is not shared across the system. In other words, one state is not able to take a look at what it is that another state has in its records. All of that is siloed. It's meant to provide a uniform ability. And so um, so it provides some consistency in being able to um, allow the various states to have sort of a a uniformity of capacity um, and also some uniformities in, uh, you know, in approach to to record keeping and the like. But the the interesting part of your question, the implicit part of your question is, well, how is uniformity established in terms of, uh, you know, examination approaches, examination uh, modules, questions, outcomes, how you deal with market intermediaries and the various issues that you may encounter in an examination. And that's all done through the committees. So, you know, the, the, the sections, the broker dealer section meets and they, they deal with um, issues of concern to multiple jurisdictions. Uh, they will, they'll meet, they'll, they'll try and uh, figure out where consensus is. They'll try and size up uh, problems based on their individual experiences and what they're finding in exams in their jurisdictions and they'll look for ways to sort of disseminate um, uh, uniform thinking about what it is that they're finding collectively. So I think the short summary of it is that NEMO exists for uniformity of uh, capacity or capability. But um, in terms of uniformity of approach, that's that's a matter of uh, section and committee discussions and disseminations of information out to the membership. 
It's a helpful answer, Vincent, a helpful sort of look at, at how the sausage is made, if you will. I mean, I think I think you actually answered a better question than I asked. So thank you for that. It's uh, I, I'm sure that, that that everyone listening will be interested to hear sort of how how it works. Uh, of course, you know, sometimes examinations lead to enforcement actions. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, as you know, I'm, I'm an enforcement guy. So I went to take a look at NASA's most recent enforcement report, which actually tracks data from 2018. It includes some impressive stats. So in 2018, NASA members received 8,814 complaints. NASA members opened 5,320 investigations and brought 2,067 enforcement actions in connection with which $558 million were ordered to be returned to investors. So that's a lot. Vince, what is NASA's role with respect to the state regulatory agency's enforcement programs? The first thing I think that's important to understand is that NASA itself is not a regulator. And so our role is primarily one of uh, coordination and facilitation. In other words, if you have a multi-jurisdiction sweep like either the crypto sweep or efforts that we may wind up undertaking um, to combat coronavirus-related fraud, uh, NASA will sit in the role of helping, uh, helping states communicate with each other, providing tools that they can use collectively for investigation purposes, and providing a forum by which they can collectively decide uh, based on the intelligence that they're receiving uh, where priorities may lie, what it is that is simply a matter of inspection, what it is that is a matter of a cease and desist, what it is that's going to be a matter of uh, stronger enforcement action. And by being able to be in that central place, both as the uh, association and also through the work of our enforcement section, we're able to get information across a number of jurisdictions much more quickly than would be uh, possible through bilateral communications. And also there's an efficiency to be gained by having a, a clear uniform purpose in these sweep efforts. It's helpful to understand that that sort of central role that that NASA is playing, at least in terms of you know disseminating information. I think you had mentioned that an example of that was something called Operation Crypto Sweep. Could you tell us a little bit about that and how NASA's role played out in that context? So for Operation Crypto Sweep, membership went out and were looking for the types of solicitations that were being issued. Um, a lot of online research was devoted to this in order to see what it is that's being offered, what kind of claims are being made and where they're being made from. And so from that, you know, a, a group of candidates was identified uh, that would be worthy of further scrutiny, divided up you know, jurisdictionally, and then jurisdictions were reaching out. And in some instances, as I think I'd alluded to in my previous answer, that can simply be a matter of um, making inquiries and uh, finding out that our initial concerns are, are not fully warranted, or it can be a matter of ordering someone to cease and desist, uh, or it can be a matter of stronger enforcement action. And again, it depends on what's being found. If what's being found is a misunderstanding of how an offering may be a securities offering, um, you know, there, there may be different responses. But if what we wind up finding is 
fraudulent activity where the idea of a distributed ledger technology is just a premise for an offering fraud, well then, you know, it's a different kind of um, it's it's a different kind of response. And and that that was what I was trying to allude to when we talked in our enforcement report about the fact that we and we distinguished in the language of the report between inquiries and investigations and enforcement actions. So if you, you know, if you were to look out there at the time for anything that was distributed ledger technology oriented, you would see you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of um, of websites, of offers, of social media chats, all sorts of things that are out there. You know, just just a mountain of information to get through to try and figure out uh, who's actually doing wrong and to what degree. It's absolutely fascinating, and you know, again. For me, I, I think it's interesting that it helps bring some consistency or, or, or some discipline, um, you know, across or among the, the state securities regulators. I think that coordination between the, the state regulators from the enforcement side is is a great point for for NASA and and its developments there. Vince, I know that there's also kind of a, a proactive effort from NASA in developing model rules and laws. Uh, can you explain to us that process and, and how that interacts with the the state regulators? Yeah, happy to. Just talking about it at the highest level, the idea is that NASA, through its membership committees, will create a model rule. There will be an internal comment process um, on the way to you know creating something that is then offered out to the various jurisdictions. The jurisdictions are, of course, free to either take it up or not. What most often happens is that a need is identified uh, among members of the association for uh, for some certain model rulemaking that may be of use to multiple jurisdictions, and it'll either be done within an existing committee or within the work of a section, or uh, you know something will be created for the purpose. Uh, a working group or uh, you know some portion of a committee's work will be devoted to the development of a either a model statute or a model rule uh, that will then be drafted internally. It will then uh, go out to the membership for their comment, and it'll then be offered to the membership for their adoption or modification. And, and, all, of, and all of that does happen. You know, some, some jurisdictions will take it as is. Others will take it and blend it into their existing um, statutory and regulatory frameworks because not all of them are the same. And so therefore, anything that we offer on a model basis may not work for every single jurisdiction. So uh, to sum all that up, I guess I would say a need is identified, resources are found, a drafting effort is undertaken, a comment period happens, and then it's offered. And you know, not, not every one of them has the same level of adoption as the others. Staying on the topic of state securities regulation, I think it's important to discuss the unique responsibility events of state regulators, some of which you've talked to. Many of the headline issues covered in business news outlets and mainstream media don't get to that level of detail regarding the state securities regulation. What are some of the primary aspects of the state securities laws? Thanks for the, the question, Chris. Just to talk about it generally, state securities regulators have a few uh, areas of responsibility that are state responsibilities. They license broker-dealers and investment advisors and securities firms 
that con uh, conduct business in a particular state. Uh, they examine firms and associated persons for compliance with securities laws and maintenance of accurate records and client accounts and uh, questions of that nature, uh, you know, regulatory questions that apply to the conduct of market intermediaries. They have oversight responsibility for investment advisor firms with assets uh, under management of 100 million or less, and for all investment advisor representatives. Uh, state regulators also have responsibilities for reviewing and registering certain securities offered to particular states' investors. That doesn't apply to all securities offerings, as uh, those of us that are familiar with federal regulation would know. And in particular, there are uh, two acts, the National Securities Market Improvements Act and the Jobs Act, that have as part of those acts sections of securities offerings that were preempted from state review and are solely subject of federal review. Even with that, there are a wide variety of offerings that are still subject to state review. Uh, but then last and uh, certainly not least uh, is the enforcement of state securities laws, including anti-fraud actions. You know, that is one of the most extremely important parts of what it is that, that our regulators do. Uh, we pride ourselves on being uh, the ground level regulators, those most closely in, in contact with investors. And uh, you know, because of that, I think that states take a lot of well-earned pride in the quality of their enforcement efforts and in the vigor of their enforcement efforts. Well, Vince, I think that's an interesting point. Uh, you also touched on kind of that interaction between the federal and state regulators. And, and obviously, NASA is, is on a, a national level. How does NASA collaborate and complement the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, as a lot of the focus of both of the organizations uh, seem to overlap? Certainly, we talk about examination issues with each other, uh, discrete examination issues or uh, questions, you know, questions about how to deal with regulatory developments. And so there, are, there will be uh, conversations of that nature. With respect to enforcement, um, there, is, uh, uh, there are conversations and there's information sharing uh, in order to, um, uh, to be able to allocate resources most efficiently. Uh, and the federal government may recognize that some matters are uh, either uh, wholly or predominantly matters of one or a handful of states and therefore may be uh, most appropriately handled at the state level. So there will be that sort of interaction. And then there's interaction in terms of investor education uh, that happens among the federal regulators, the uh, state regulators, and the SROs. And in some instances, some of that, you know, some of that actually comes out as coordinated and joint branded product. Other times it, it reflects discussions. It may, you know, there may be uh, an SEC release, there may be a FIN release, there may be a NASA release, all of which are discrete, but they still may reflect some uh, joint conversations about the nature about how to address problems. And so, uh, so there are those aspects. And then I think, you know, uh, there's, also, the interaction for uh, the rulemaking process, ours being primarily one of commentary, but there's a lot of discussion that, that goes into that in order to be able to have uh, a collaborative process to be a helpful part of the rulemaking efforts as well. 
To follow up on that, I know, Vince, that NASA also interacts with self-regulatory organizations or SROs. You know, what types of interactions does NASA have with FINRA, for example, or, or any other SROs that, that sit in the security space? But our primary SRO contact is FINRA, which is the SRO for the broker-dealer community. And um, I think that you had mentioned, Chris, at the outset of the podcast that we coordinate on examinations. So um, we offer the 63, 65, and 66. Uh, FINRA helps us to offer those, uh, those licensing examinations to would-be registrants. We also coordinate on licensing procedures because uh, taking a test is only one part of what it takes to become licensed either in a brokerage or an advisory capacity. We also uh, maintain uh, registrant databases together. One is the Central Registration Depository, which holds information both about onboarding and termination and regulatory actions and customer complaints for uh, broker-dealer representatives and firms. That is a regulatory side database, but there are certain parts of that information that are public. And so if you were to visit BrokerCheck, uh, BrokerCheck is a subset of that uh, information. Then there's also the Investment Advisor Registration Depository, IARD, which is the uh, IA equivalent of the Central Registration Depository. We also work together on uh, uh, questions of examination issues and content licensing issues, how it is that uh, you know, any of those standards may need to be changed or made more uniform. We're also talking with each other about questions of the day in terms of how we are collectively approaching the coronavirus pandemic. And there's been a number of uh, conversations, uh, depending on the question, we're in daily contact with them about how it is that we're jointly responding to these issues. But so in addition to questions of licensing and questions of examination, we'll also compare notes on complaints that we're receiving because, uh, you know, just as we receive complaints in our various jurisdictions, FINRA receives complaints uh, not only through its its main intake functions, but they also have a function that is particularly devoted to um, senior issues. And so we'll, we'll trade information about that. Uh, we will uh, ask questions collectively about broker-dealer health and how it is that firms are dealing with the, the pandemic. And so there's, as I said, almost daily communications uh, about various topics that we're dealing with in order to have a, a coordinated response. One area where you know I've noted recently that there appears to be a coordinated response is with respect to examinations. And from what I've read, NASA and FINRA are collaborating to roll out an online examination or, or testing platform for folks who want to become registered reps at a, at a broker-dealer. It feels to me like that initiative is being largely driven by the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and to be specific, by people being forced to work remotely or you know work work from home. A few times during our conversation today, I think you've mentioned just how disruptive coronavirus has been for 
for your work and for the work of the state securities regulators. I think that may be an area where we see kind of all of these pieces that we've talked about from from NASA's role to collaborating with regulators and SROs, all those pieces kind of come together. So Vince, why don't you tell us a little bit about what NASA is doing in response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely, and thanks for the question. The first part of your question dealt with the development of the remote testing technology and application. And yes, of course, part of that is due to the fact that people are displaced and working from home. Talking more expansively about our coronavirus response, NASA has drafted and disseminated uh, a model emergency relief order to its membership. And uh, just just as I'd said about model orders uh, or model legislation or rulemaking generally, the same is true here. Some states have taken it up wholly. Other states uh, have taken it up piecemeal. But we had gone out and we'd taken input in from the SEC and from FINRA about what it is that registrants needed, what it is that we could do, what what sort of circumstances and hardships were uh, market intermediaries facing and came up with a set of solutions that we hoped would be able to um, allow them to continue to function as as best as as is possible. So that was one thing that we did. We also put out... uh, model agency notice language so that uh, state regulators would start communicating to registrants in the same way about, here's where we are, this is how to find us, this is who and how to direct this sort of question to, this is how to deal with that filing issue. Just small piece, as I said, um, uh, we're members of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, so we prepared NASA's public remarks for um, I think it was their last public meeting. Um, We've also created on our website, the NASA website, a COVID-19 response page. And on that response page, you can see we have a clearinghouse for state orders and other information for members and registrants so that we'll put up orders that are securities related, not all state orders, obviously, but securities related state orders will go up on our website. Uh, we put up a couple of FAQs as well and a couple of notices, all, all of which serves almost in the same way that, uh, that the model order does, because it gives states a place to go and see what others are doing and consider whether that's something that they may want to do in their own jurisdictions. And we've seen that, um, that states have taken up uh, an order initially and then have gone back and added to it through supplemental orders. Um, As we've been discussing over the last few answers, we've been uh, coordinating with regulators and SROs. And to to bucket some of those discussions, there's been conversations of enforcement monitoring, registrant concerns. In other words, um, you know, what is what is it that we're uh, that we may be worried is happening to industry and what it is that we can do about it? And then, of course, uh, investor education, just to keep people aware of unique coronavirus-related concerns. And some of those are just opportunities to um, put out guidance that we perennially put out about how to um, do proper due diligence when you're approached about an investment opportunity or when an investment uh, professional reaches out to you to offer their services and how it is that you should think carefully and properly before um, accepting such an offer. 
So, I mean, first of all, kudos and, and thank you to your team. That's a tremendous amount of work to create or compile those resources and make them available to your members and to the public. I, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly useful and invaluable resource. So congrats to you and the team. I think what we'd like to do with the time we have left is pivot and touch on a couple of the of the more hot topics or some of the things that have been more interesting, I think, to folks in the market. And that's Reg BI, of course. Um, we've talked about it a few times already. And Vince, if you've if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know it's a running joke between Chris and I. We count how many times we talk about Reg BI on every episode. And um, Chris, I'm sure, has tallied during the course of this one and will let me know later. We average um, about six and a half Reg BI comments per episode. So yeah, we're, we're right. trying to drive it up on this episode, though. So a little <laughs> bit of Reg BI, a little bit about the accredited investor definition, and, and maybe a couple others if there's time. But Chris, I think you wanted to kick us off actually with an even more recent rulemaking proposal. So you want to take it away? That's right. On April 21st, the SEC announced that it has voted to propose a new rule that would establish a framework for fund valuation practices designed to clarify how fund boards can satisfy their valuation obligations in light of market developments as funds increase the variety of asset classes held and the volume and types of data utilized in valuation determinations. According to the SEC's press release, this is their first comprehensive foray into updating valuation practices since 1970. Uh, Kurt, going back to some of the other rulemakings, we've seen be uh, significant updates over the past few decades. The SEC notes that as markets have evolved in the ensuing decades, funds are utilizing third-party pricing services for hard-to-value assets. That, coupled with 50 years of regulatory development that have impacted the ways in which boards, advisors, auditors, and other market participants approach valuation, have created the need for the commission to provide an update. Vince, has NASA commented or stated a view publicly on the proposed framework for fund valuation practices, knowing that this happened uh, merely a week ago on April 21st? Right. Well, so so as you uh, in your question is the answer. You know, it's only recently been proposed, um, and uh, and there's a significant comment period. So no, we haven't we haven't weighed in yet. And I think it's important to note that uh, NASA doesn't comment on every rule proposal. Uh, you know, there there are certain things that are um, outside of our investor protection focus that uh, may or may not make. NASA commentary helpful or additive to the discussion. And so as we do for um, rule proposals generally, we will do for this proposal. And that is, we'll review it in light of our mission. Uh, I, I and my team will then be discussing it with the appropriate sections and committees to try and engage membership interest and membership priorities. And then we'll we'll take all of that back in and try and figure out whether a consensus exists for a strong message. And uh, then we'll provide it to our president, whose whose pen it ultimately goes out under, uh, to get his intake as well. And uh, and then there may be yet further reviews on on what it is after uh, we've put pen to paper in terms of what the final product looks like. But all of that is a long-winded way of saying that there's a process not only to determine what the position is going to be, but even to determine whether or not there's going to be a position. And that work is only beginning to get underway with respect to this particular proposal. 
Right. So let's let's talk about an example of where you've gone through that process or where NASA has gone through that process and actually issued a comment letter or letters. And, and this is the pivot to, to Reg BI. Um, I suspect most of our listeners are familiar with it by now, but what Reg BI does is elevate the standard of conduct that would be required of broker dealers. Essentially, asking them to do a bit more than satisfy the suitability standard that existed under FINRA's rules. Now, NASA has written a number of comment letters that relate to the broker-dealer standard of comment. NASA commented on the SEC's proposed rule during the comment period, and NASA has since prepared and, and published comment letters that relate to some of the state securities regulators' proposed broker-dealer conduct standards. Vince, can you summarize for us NASA's position on Reg BI, or, or maybe more broadly, the broker-dealer conduct standard? I think it's uh, important to understand when you ask, what is NASA's position? Our position is something that is going to be context-specific. And what I mean by that is uh, NASA comments on the proposal and offers its thoughts and its perspective and its suggestions. And so there is no such thing as a post-regulation best interest NASA comment piece. Rather, there's uh, a, a fairly extensive and voluminous letter set for the comment proposals as they were unfolding. And so we opined on the proposal a number of times. And in fact, we were asked to opine on it to provide supplementary information. And so we had highlighted portions of the proposing release that we believed would be used by industry to continue harmful practices um, that, that we had seen experienced under the existing suitability standard. Uh, we also said, however, and, and I think that this is important, we said it in a context of supporting the work of the commission and other agencies to raise the standard of care for broker-dealers. And then to talk about just, you know, some facets of the nature of our commentary, along the way, we advocated for a number of modifications to the proposal. So first of all, we had advocated for a wider application of the standard beyond retail customers. We had asked for clarifications of the factors that must be considered for expanding conflict of interest and mitigation obligations. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, I, I appreciate, as I'm sure your listenership does, that um, a lot of what is happening in regulation best interest is principles-based rulemaking as opposed to, you know, prescriptive black letter rules. Because as I understand that the commission is trying to create this balance between raising the standard, but also preserving investor choice. And some of those balances um, are, are done in the commission's estimation best by principles-based rulemaking. And certain of our, um, certain of our comments, uh, we found, you know, I, I don't know if we can particularly take credit because there was so much commentary that I'm sure that what the commission does is considers the weight of commentary between proposing release and, um, and implementation. But so, for instance, we had said that certain incentive-related practices should be deemed per se incompatible with the best interest standard. And as you know, um, sales contests were, uh, were prohibited. And so there's an iterative back and forth between 
regulators and commenters in the, the in the rulemaking process that that goes towards the the final product. And so, um, you know, I'm happy that NASA was able to be a part of that, and I'm happy to see that certain of its commentary uh, uh, was taken up. And as I said, who knows whether NASA's particular letter is the genesis for any one change? But I think it's important to be part of that process so that even if one commenter was to make uh, a particular suggestion, the, the, the commission may, may deem it to be sort of an outlier view. But to the extent that NASA is part of a broader body of commenters making the same suggestion, it shows that there is um, a groundswell of support or concern for a particular part of the proposal and for a particular response to that proposal you know so so being part of being part of that process and this one being unique in that there were sort of multiple rounds of, of commentary uh, i thought was valuable for all included yeah i mean a, a couple particularly interesting points in there at least from from where i sit i mean one is just this this concept of being involved in the process I'm, i know when i've helped clients write comment letters in the past or when i've spoken with folks who are who are helping clients write a comment letter they always find it um, rewarding if their comment letter gets footnoted in in an SEC rulemaking proposal uh, or, or guidance because um, I, I think it feels like it gave them a little bit of ownership or like they they were heard. And I know uh, the commission and, and the staff and the commission are, are careful to actually include some of the comments of of some of the more thoughtful comment letters that come through. So um, it's an excellent point, uh, maybe a little bit more of a, of a thorny practitioner's point, but I, I certainly hear you when you say it's nice to feel like you have been engaged and involved in the conversation. Um, another point that you made, and it's one that, that we've talked about just, um, on past episodes, is just this concept of principles-based rulemaking. The, the commission has rolled out a ton of rules over the last year or 18 months. I mean, more than you would typically see, maybe more than we've ever seen over a 12 or 18 month period. And what I've noticed is that many of them are in fact a principles-based model. The, the advertising rule, which was another one where they updated a rule for the first time in 50 or 60 years, was a switch to a principles-based model. And I think you know what they're trying to do is bake in a little bit of flexibility so that uh, regulated entities can tailor their systems programs and compliance functions to to a rulemaking framework that that can work for everybody. So, you know, I, I applaud the commission for their effort there. I, I agree with you, Vince, that there are places where I think some of the rules could be a little bit more prescriptive. On the other hand, there are some rulemaking proposals that I think are are relatively prescriptive. Um, and one more that we want to touch on today is a rule a rule proposal that relates to the definition of accredited investors. Just to catch everybody up, the SEC has proposed a rule that would change the definition of, quote, accredited investors, unquote. The definition of an accredited investor determines who can invest in private companies. And there has been an ongoing debate or dialogue for a couple of years now, maybe even longer, about whether the definition of accredited investor should be broadened to allow more investors to invest in private companies. I know this is an area where NASA has, you know, provided a comment letter, I think made a pretty clear statement on where they or their members are. 
Um, but I, I don't want to put words in NASA's mouth. Vince, why don't you tell us what was NASA's position or what, what were the members' position on the accredited investor definition? What you were alluding to, uh, Kurt, is the, the commentary that we had around um, those parts of the proposal that would change the definition of accredited investor as it applies to natural persons and adding categories of natural persons who could become accredited investors by virtue of um, taking licensing examinations or having some other metric for um, establishing the sophistication to get into um, uh, private offerings. And so, yes, we have uh, a lot of concerns about that. Um, uh, you know, from an investor protection perspective, and that and that's um, you know earned by um, a lot of hard years of experience in seeing investors being harmed in the private markets and not being able to uh, evaluate risks properly, and just you know the um, uh, either questions of bad actors in those markets, or just not being able to understand that private offerings come with increased risks, either in the nature and the quality of the business, or in the lack of liquidity in the securities that you, uh, that you, you take. You, you may not be able to unload them, and you're, uh, you're wed to this, this company for whatever ride it's about to put you through. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of risks in private offerings that don't exist to the same degree uh, in most contexts in liquid registered offerings. And against that background, uh, we, were, um, uh, we were very um, adamant about uh, making sure that investor protection concerns were uh, uh, prominently uh, featured or were a prominently part of the SEC's considerations between proposal and enacting rule. And so in terms of a couple of things that we actually advocated for specifically, we said that the commission should revise the current financial, the income and net worth thresholds upwards uh, and should index them going forward so that they reflect uh, you know, a, certain, a certain level of economic wherewithal that it is timeless. We did say, and I think it's important, we put in one of our footnotes that while we recognize that certain thresholds had been offered, we did not say you know, it now has to be X hundred thousand in income or X million uh, in net worth. Rather, what we said is that the um, uh, the revision of those financial standards should be based on um, should be based on data and study, which was another concern that we had about the nature of the proposal. We thought, and the commission uh, had recognized in certain places that not enough information existed to make firm conclusions about the effect of certain parts of the proposal. We said that sophistication metrics, the sophistication metrics that the SEC was offering initially or those that they may contemplate in the future should be combined with some sort of indication that an investor has the uh, experience necessary to, uh, to, to wade in these waters. Um, I think the the notion that, and this is this is me speaking, but I think the notion that a person can uh, reach a uh, materially higher level of sophistication that would allow that person to um, to adequately wade in 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 the waters of private offerings by virtue of taking a test 
is it's something that we shouldn't test by allowing allowing people to do mm-hmm. it right off that. Uh, I have very very serious concerns about that. But we also said that sophistication should be combined with the ability to bear losses, and we made references back to SEC versus Ralston Purina, uh, where uh, some of the um, standards for determining what kind of offer doesn't need to be registered were established. And in that and in legislative history surrounding um, the accredited investor definition, you know, there was an idea that the ideal type of investor who should be in these markets should be a person who has the, you know, sophistication to understand these, uh, these types of offerings, the ability to actually go out and get information on that person's own initiative and through that person's own means that um, that isn't being provided in a registered context, and also the ability to bear losses associated with private offerings. And you know, without all of those elements, um, there's 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 a concern that natural persons would be exposing themselves to risks that they uh, shouldn't be undertaking and may not be able. To bear. And then lastly, as, as an overarching point, we've made uh, in a couple of places that the commission should conduct sufficient study to have database support for the proposal. And um, we weren't the only commentator that mentioned uh, uh, the fact that uh, there, there are just parts of the proposal for which the commission admits that there isn't sufficient data to, um, you know, to, to, to measure the effect. That's helpful, Vince, and I think it's particularly helpful just to see how NASA thinks about approaches and, and tailors its response or comments in a couple different and specific contexts. So thank you for that summary. I think with respect to rulemakings, we'll leave it there, but I will say for anyone that's interested, NASA's comment letters are available and very easy to find on their on their website. And I think they're actually quite helpful and good reads. So I would commend them to anyone who's interested. Go check them out. Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guest, Vince Martinez. For more information on the North American Securities Administrators Association, or this NASA, and the status of the topics and efforts discussed today, check out their website at www.nasaa.org or on social media on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at NASAA. As always, we want to hear from you guys regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA. And I'm at enforce underscore update. Thanks for listening and looking forward to speaking with you on future episodes. Be safe, everyone. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, 
or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Sanders, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, expressed or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. CLE and CPE credit are not offered for listening to this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, retransmission or editing of this podcast may be made without prior written permission from PLI. PLI.